So with that, uh, let's go ahead and get started. So again, my name is Alex Barthet. Uh, I own and operate a law firm in Miami. Uh, all we do is construction law and construction litigation. We just focus on those in the construction industry. Today we're going to talk about 10 mistakes that you need to be aware of in your construction contract. Um, so let's get started. Uh, the 10 things, the 10 mistakes you need to avoid. So number one uh, is not getting it in writing. Number two, not reading or understanding the entire contract. Number three, believing the other side when they tell you that under no circumstances will they make any changes to your contract. Number four, not clearly defining your scope. And even more important, listing all of the exceptions in, your, uh, in the contract before you sign it. Uh, number five, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, not limiting your exposure in the contract. I'm going to talk about some very specific contract provisions you need to be aware of. Number six, not passing down to your subs or sub-subs the risks that you inherit in the course of your construction contracting. Number seven, misunderstanding your insurance coverage, thinking it gives you more coverage than you actually have, uh, and not understanding what that indemnity and defense obligation is when you sign it with that, in that contract. Number eight, not complying with the notice requirements of your contract or not properly documenting what's happening on the job. Number nine, uh, improperly releasing uh, or not securing your lien or bond rights. And then number 10, waiting too long when something has gone wrong uh, before you decide to move forward legally. All right, so Number one, not getting it in writing. Uh, so this, it sounds obvious, I know it sounds obvious, like I should have a contract, it should be in writing, but you'd still be surprised to find that lots of people come to my office and I say, well, can you send me your contract? And they say, well, I don't really have one. So you wanna try to avoid that. You would like all your agreements to be in writing. And the reason is, is that it minimizes and hopefully eliminates that very convenient memory. When the other side tells you, I, I never agreed to that. That was never part of the deal. Um, the way you avoid that is you have something in writing that says, this is what the deal is. So what about your estimate, your bid, your proposal, uh, a quote? Are those contracts? The answer is yes. So you need to do two things with respect to those documents. Um, number one, ideally you get it signed. Ideally the other side, when you send it to them, signs it and sends it back to you. Number two, use this as an opportunity to include at least some basic terms in the, the document because that may be the only document that you ever get signed on this job and that becomes your contract. So some of the things you may want to consider, the right to recover legal fees if you have to sue somebody, um, the right to stop work, uh, all of the terms and conditions or exclusions, I should say, about what you're going to provide, what you're not going to provide. Um, use that quote uh, as the opportunity to include that information. Now, ideally you have something more than this, but if all you ever get signed is an estimate, use it as the vehicle to get some terms into the deal. Now there is one major exception to not having it in writing, and that is if you have the opportunity uh, or are presented with a contract that you don't want to sign, 
then maybe no agreement is better than that agreement. And let me give you a specific example. We had a client come to us. He was an electrician. He was about two months into a job, and he was negotiating back and forth with the contractor on the terms and conditions of his contract. It came to a point where the contractor said, look, I'm not paying you until you sign this contract. And he said, well, I don't agree to the terms. And they said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to pay you. And he felt compelled to sign the document, even though he didn't agree to it, in order to get the next check. Everything went downhill about six months later. Now, my advice to him, had he called me at that point, when he was presented with that opportunity, don't sign the contract. Don't agree to those terms, because having no terms are better than the terms that were in the contract that was presented to you. You still have lien rights, even though you have no written agreement. And you could walk off the job. Now he signed a contract that said, under no circumstances can he walk off the job. So he made it worse by signing the agreement. So there's, this is one exception when not having an agreement is better than having a written agreement. All right, so number two, not reading or understanding the entire contract. Um, so again, this sounds obvious. You need to have the whole contract. Uh, and that may not be the physical document that you actually have in your possession, because there may be other things that are part of it. Um, before we get to that, the contract is more than the price, the scope, and the schedule. That's the 10, 20, 30 pages that you skip over, right? You look at the first page, yep, that's my number. You go to the end, right, those are my plans, I agree to the time, and then you sign the contract. That would be a mistake. All of those boilerplate terms and conditions, that's where the devil lies. You need to understand those provisions. So what is the entire contract? Does it reference another document like the prime contract? Do you have it? Have you seen it? Because even if you haven't seen it, that contract says you probably have and that you agree to all those terms. Um, how about any other documents that are referenced or incorporated into the contract? Have you read them? Do you have them? Um, one of the things that we're seeing on a more regular basis is reference in contracts to websites that have terms and conditions. We had a client who is a uh, precast, actually in this example, this division was a metal fabrication company. And they were manufacturing these big uh, tubes that were gonna be sent to Louisiana and then they were gonna put a pump in it and they were gonna use these on the levees. Um, so they get this purchase order and on the face it seems pretty simple. It has next to no terms and conditions. They sign it and then that's when the problems start. They call me and I say, well, what about these seven pages of terms and conditions? They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you see at the bottom where you sign the PO? And it said, this PO incorporates all the terms and conditions found at www.thus and such. They said, yeah, we didn't think much of it. Well, if you follow that link, it's seven pages of terms and conditions that they never even knew existed, they didn't agree to. So when you look at what your contract is, you need to look at all of the documents that make it up, including any documents that are referenced on a website. I will tell you when clients come to us and they want us to prepare their terms and conditions, one of the things that we recommend is, hey, 
why don't you put uh, a reference to your website and take your terms and conditions and put it on the website? Because guess what? Hardly anyone will ever read them. And if we have a dispute, we'll just say, here they are, and the court will enforce them. So be very careful about that. So what happens to your estimate or your proposal when you sign the contract? We have clients that come to us sometimes and they say, yeah, but I, I get it. I signed this contract, but I have all of these exclusions in my proposal. And so was your proposal part of the contract? And they say, well, uh, you know, I gave them a proposal and then I signed their contract. Much more often than not, the contract says that only the terms and conditions in that document are the ones that apply. And nothing else, even the prior proposal or quote, um, is part of the agreement. Um, that's what's called a merger clause. That exists in almost every contract. Everything from before is gone, only what's here applies. So if you have great terms and conditions in your uh, proposal, but they never make it into the contract, well, guess what? It's as if they never existed. Um, another thing to watch out for, if you submit a bid, usually electronically, one of the things that the contractor uh, may do is they may say, uh, when you submit the bid, that by submitting a bid, you agree to, to use our form of contract once you sign, uh, once you're approved uh, to get the job. So if we give you the job, you're going to agree to use our contract. So you're submitting a bid, which is effectively a number, and by submitting it, you've now clicked a little box that said that you're agreeing to their terms and conditions in their contract, which you probably haven't seen and you probably wouldn't agree to. So be very careful when you submit bids that there are no conditions associated with the submittal of the bid um, to a contractor. Um, it goes without saying that you need to understand what you're signing, but I still have clients that come to us and they have no idea what's in these contracts. And I can't blame them because these contracts, the, the contracts that I see these days are tremendously complicated. Um, and uh, you probably need a law degree to understand them. The important thing is to know that what you don't understand, which is good because you're all here, that's why you're learning all of this stuff, um, and ask the right questions and get the right help so that you understand the risk that you're taking on. So number three, believing that no changes can be made to the contract. Every subcontractor or sub-sub um, or even contractors come to me when they're presented with a contract from an owner and they say, you know, I need you to look at this contract, Alex, but you know, they told me they're not gonna make any changes. I am here to tell you that every owner in town and every contractor in town has and will make changes to their construction contract. Um, they're telling you no to start the process of getting you to just sign what they have and not push back. Um, so one of the ways that you can accomplish this goal is to use what's called an addendum. Most contractors don't want you to mark up, or owners, to mark up their contract. What they want is, or what they consider, I should say, is an addendum. Some additional document that modifies the original contract. So here's some language you can use in your addendum. Um, so again, it's just a completely separate document, and it starts by saying, this addendum shall modify and supersede any and all provisions contained in the agreement and all exhibits referenced herein, 
between the contractor and subcontractor for this project. Again, and you can change it to subcontractor and sub-sub, you can change it to owner and contractor, but now this one page that you're gonna say, uh, you know, paragraph three, strike the last sentence. Uh, paragraph nine, add, and then you'll add the sentences. You'll do that on a separate document called an addendum, and it will start with this uh, sentence, and then both parties will sign the contract and sign the addendum, and now you've modified the contract. Um, and, and again, I'm just telling you from direct experience, contractors and owners will modify their contracts. If they need you or really want you, uh, it really depends on the market, uh, but it's, everyone's pretty busy now, so uh, getting changes to your contract is not impossible. Number four, not clearly defining your scope of work and not listing all of the exceptions that make up uh, your bid or your quote. So obviously you want to spend some time defining what it is that you're going to do in your contract. Um, you should spend even more time listing what you are not going to do. What is outside of your scope of work? Uh, what is outside of your price? Uh, because those are the things that are going to potentially turn into a change order and or a dispute. So you know what it is in your business. There's lots of things that you do on a regular basis that you know people always ask about. You should have a, a kind of a running list of those exclusions and those should be part of your contract uh, addendum. The other thing to consider are, are there any assumptions associated with your price, your scope, or your schedule? And if so, then you need to state it. So if, for example, you are an underground contractor and you are basing your price and schedule and scope on certain underground conditions, then it's important that you identify those in your contract. Because if you don't, most contracts will say something like, you've investigated the site, you're happy with it, you have no issues, and if you find anything wrong with the site or its underground conditions, you own it, not me. So the contractor or owner takes that risk and they put it on you. So if you are assuming certain things, maybe you have a geotech report and you're basing your um, bid on that geotech report, then specifically reference it. Say that our bid is based on the information on this geotech report and that if other conditions exist, we're entitled to a change order. One of the things that I find is that even if you cannot get the change agreed to in your contract, you have at least had the discussion with the other side so you know where they stand on the issue so that there are no surprises later. Watch out for language that says reasonably inferable. Um, this is common in AIA contracts. We see it in almost every contract. And this is what it means. It says, you agree to provide everything that you define in your scope and anything that's reasonably inferable from it, which is kind of a catch-all. So I'll give you a good example that uh, we had a client run into. We represented a charter school that was building out their, uh, a new wing of their charter school. The plans from the architect that they had were horrible. Um, they did not show the connection from the thermostat in the rooms to the unit, the air conditioner units. So um, they started to build the building, they put in the AC units, they started to do all the drywall, and then as everything's almost done, they realized, oh, wait a second, 
we need to put these thermostats in. So that means we have to tear out some of the drywall and run this wire. Um, it was about a $15,000 change order. And our contract for the owner with the contractor said that they were obligated to provide everything that was in the plans and anything reasonably inferable from it. So we went back to the contractor and said, you own this. It's reasonably inferable that if we're going to have air conditioning, we need thermostats to control them. So you should have looked at the plans, you should have identified them, and, and then submitted a change order or a claim, but you didn't. So we took your lump sum price, and, and now this is on you. And he agreed, and he, he ate the 15 grand. So be very careful about this language. It's probably not possible to strike it, uh, because most owners and contractors are going to want to keep it in, but you just need to be aware of its existence. <clears throat> Next, you need to review all of the plan pages that become part of your contract that you actually sign and ensure that they are the same by page, date, and revision that is what you bid on. So if you bid on revision set two, and it comes time to contract and they're on revision set four, where are those changes? Do you need to reprice the job? Or do you need to go back to the contractor or owner and say, look, I bid on revision set two. I'll sign this contract with revision set two, but I haven't seen or I haven't had a chance to price revision set four, so I can't agree to a contract that says that. Because if you do, then what's gonna happen? You're going to find things that are not, that, that you didn't expect, and the contractor or the owner is going to say, you own it, this was in your contract, you agreed to everything that's in these plans. The other thing that we suggest contractors do uh, is list all of the plans. So if, you, if you're a contractor and you hire the plumber, don't just limit the plumber's contract to the plumbing pages you should include every page, because maybe the architects and the engineers included some plumbing-related items in the electrical section or the structural section. You know, they shouldn't have, but they did. And the way you solve that problem as a contractor is to make sure that when you contract with each of the trades, 100% of the plans are in their scope of work. As a sub, you, want to like, you would like to do the opposite. If I'm the plumber, I just want the plumbing pages attached to my contract. I don't want electrical, I don't want structural. It's rare that you can get a contractor to agree to that, but not impossible. Some less sophisticated contractors will let you get away with that because they don't, they don't understand the significance of that. All right, number five, not limiting your exposure in your construction contract. So we're gonna go through a handful of very specific contract provisions. Everyone knows what the infamous pay when paid provision is. Um, it effectively means that you as a sub don't get paid if the owner hasn't paid the contractor. And that can work all the way down to the sub-subs as well. When that provision exists in your contract and you also have a provision that says you cannot stop work if there's a dispute, which again is a very common provision, you have a very big problem. What does that mean? That means you're not getting paid potentially, and you have to keep paying your labor, and you have to keep buying materials, and you can't stop working, and then you have to start the dispute resolution process as a means to solve this problem. Because if you just say, I'm done, you're technically in breach of the contract. 
So it would be nice if you had the right to stop work. So you have to affirmatively add a provision that gives you the right to stop work. So here's a sample of one. Subcontractor may slow or suspend work if any pay requests have not been paid in full within 30 calendar days from submission. And again, maybe you start the negotiations with this, and they say, no, I can't agree to 30, but I'll agree to 90 days. Okay, you know, it's, a, it's at least not never. Um, and as a contractor, be aware that we see owners require that contractors keep working in, in the face of a dispute. So as a GC, with your owner, you want to make sure you include the right to stop work as well. You would like to try to add some time and written notice for any claims or back charges that uh, someone wants to assert against you. So here's an example of a provision like that. Contractor shall provide subcontractor 10 calendar days detailed written notice to cure any performance issue or delay or claim or before any payments are delayed or held back or any amounts are chargeable to subcontractor. Again, I'm not suggesting that a contractor is going to sign this as is, but it's, you need to have the discussion because if you don't add something like this to your contract, the converse exists. Usually it says 48 hours, 72 hours, and then it's gone, which is a problem because that's a really short amount of time to make anything happen. Um, we had a client, subcontractor, uh, shell contractor, who was doing work on one of these big uh, condo towers, was called in, uh, he's owed about a quarter million dollars, has a meeting with the contractor, and for the first time, the contractor says, yeah, we have back charges. They're about $200,000. Here they are. And he says, well, I, I don't have any notice. Of, like, you never sent me notice or an email or pictures. You approved my punch list. What are you talking about? And they said, no, 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 these, these are your back charges. Um, and he went through his contract, and he found a spot where he modified it to require specific written notice. And he slid it across the table to them, and he said, look, you got nothing. You didn't show me the notices that you sent to me, because if you don't have them, I'm not accepting these back charges. Um, they went back and forth for a little bit, and they now actually, as of yesterday, just settled between the two of them, and he's pretty much getting all his money, because the contractor didn't have the documentation because he modified the agreement. So having the right to be able to um, get written notice before someone can ding you with a back charge or a claim is critical. It's nice if you could just limit your, the back charges to things that you have direct control over. Most owner contracts with GCs and GC contracts with subs are, have, have broad uh, language making you potentially liable for claims that may happen on the job. So here's an example of trying to limit that. Subcontractors shall only be responsible for claims, delays, damages, back charges, losses, expenses, or liquidated damages only to the extent same are the direct result of subcontractors' sole acts or omissions. Um, again, if I would imagine everyone in this room would agree that if you screwed something up, you own it, you'll 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 fix it. But what you don't want to do is share in a loss that the contractor or owner says is your fault when in fact it isn't. So again, adding language to uh, give you that right is critical.
one of the things that you have to, to keep in mind is that most contracts, again, prime contracts between owners and GCs and subcontracts, say that you are fully responsible for all of your work and materials until it's accepted by the owner um, at the end of the job. Well, a lot happens on a construction job between the time you deliver and install and the owner actually accepts. So here's a sample of a sentence that would limit your responsibility. Subcontractor does not bear the risk of loss or damage if its worker materials once delivered or incorporated into the project, um, whichever is earlier. And the idea is that there's insurance for this, right? If I deliver uh, $50,000 worth of switch gear to the property and I install it, and then someone steals it, or the building catches on fire, why should I have to replace that at my expense um, if there's insurance? So insurance is the key here, and that's, that's how I think you push back to the other side, is you say, look, there's builder's risk, there's GL policies, that's what's intended to cover this, not me being paid once and delivering it and installing it, and installing it twice. Okay, number six, not passing down certain risks to your subs or sub-subcontractors. So uh, being a contractor, you are, you are a risk manager. That is your primary job. Um, you are managing risk. You happen to build buildings, but, but the goal is you want to manage the risk associated with this obligation. And one of the ways you do that is to pass that risk on to the people uh, that you've contracted with. So if I'm a GC, I'm going to pass on as much risk as I can to my subs. If I'm a sub, I should try to pass that risk on to my sub-subcontractors. Um, so don't forget that if you're a sub, that you can pass some of this risk on to your sub-subs. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is to have a formal written agreement uh, with your sub-subcontractor. So if I'm the, again, if we take the example uh, of I'm the, the plumber, and I'm gonna hire someone to do some of the work for me, maybe insulate some of my pipes, I don't wanna just sign that sub-subcontractor's purchase order because it's not really gonna pass on a lot of the risk. I would like to have a form agreement that I give to this insulation subcontractor so that he or she bears their portion of the risk of the job that I am subcontracting to them. You wanna make sure that it incorporates by reference the prime contract and the subcontract. So all of the risk that's landing on me, I wanna be able to pass that down by including all of those documents. Did you get adequate insurance? You know, a million dollars these days is just is not a lot of money uh, if you have a claim. You know, someone clips a shower, uh, a sprinkler head, and you know, if you're in a occupied office building, I, I mean, it could be well in excess of a million dollars. Um, and do you know that they actually have insurance? I, I may surprise some of you to tell you that there are contractors in this town who print their own certificates of insurance, and they don't mean anything. So, or by the way, they get a policy, get certificates of insurance, and then cancel the policy the next week. 
So what are you doing to verify that the people that you've hired that have given you a certificate of insurance actually have that insurance? So you want to consider uh, also getting some of your key subs or sub-subs to bond back to you. Um, Jonathan's here. He can tell us all about bonding. Uh, he'll tell you that a lot of his contractors and subs uh, have usually a threshold. 300,000, 500,000, any, any contract or subcontract over that amount, they, they get it bonded back. It's relatively cheap insurance to ensure that your sub or sub-sub is going to deliver the project at the right price, at the contracted price, uh, and on time. And, and there's a, a, a place where you can recover your losses if something goes wrong. I would suggest to you, if you're gonna consider getting anyone to give you a bond, do not just accept the bond form that they give you. Uh, there are good bond forms, and then there are better bond forms. Uh, you should talk to someone uh, to make sure that you're getting the right bond form to protect you and minimize your risk. Again, the AIA bond form is, is a good bond form, but there are ways to make it better to protect you. All right, number seven, misunderstanding your insurance and indemnity obligations. Your insurance does not cover everything you think it does. Whatever you think it covers, there are things that your insurance is not going to cover, even though you think it will. So let's talk about what your GL policy, your general liability policy, typically covers. I have had clients come to me, they get sued on a, in, in a case uh, and they come to me and they say, Alex, I need you to handle this. And you know, I have insurance, so they're going to take care of this. I, I said, well, no, you're getting sued for breach of contract. You know, your insurance company is not going to cover you for that claim. Um, or they're suing you because you owe them a defense or indemnity obligation, not for damage to other property, which is the key statement that has to be made if you want your insurance cover, your insurance company to provide a defense and indemnity to you for the loss. So let's run through some examples so you understand what's covered and what's not. I'm a plumber. I install a pipe. That pipe is installed incorrectly. It causes a leak. That leak causes $100,000 worth of drywall and flooring damage. The insurance company will likely cover the other property. Not my work, I'm the plumber. I installed the pipe incorrectly. They're not going to cover my <coughs> negligent installation of the pipe. But they will cover, or should cover, the floor, the drywall, um, and all of those related damages. Um, but the act of having to go in and replace the pipe and, and, and make it right, they will not cover that piece of the damage, because that's not damage to other property. That's damage of my own work. Um, so claims that your work was defective but didn't cause damage to other property is not covered. So if someone says you painted the building wrong, but they don't say, and therefore water got into the building and damaged other property, then you don't have coverage for that claim. You're on your own for that. The same applies for what are called wrap policies, CSIP and OSIP. CSIP stands for Contractor Controlled Insurance Program. OSIP stands for Owner Controlled Insurance Program. 
These are policies that are project specific and they cover you instead of your GL policy covering you, it's another policy that's covering you. You give a credit, uh, you, don't, you don't pay twice for it, um, but this is very common on these high-rise buildings that are going up everywhere. I would suggest to you that you need to be very careful about coverage and deductibles if you do fall into an OSIP. In the good old days, the OSIP was uh, great coverage, either no deductible or $1,000. Now we're seeing limited coverage and $50,000 deductible um, on an OSIP or a CSIP. So be very careful. Don't just think, well, I have my policy and I like it and I'm told I have to get an OSIP so it must be the same, right? Like I don't have to worry about it. No, you need to take that OSIP and you need to look through it and make sure that it gives you the coverages you need and the deductible is acceptable to you. There's even now uh, policies you can get to cover the OSIP deductible. So it's a rider on top of your OSIP. So, because you can't make changes. You're either in the OSIP or not. You don't get to say, well, I want to change my deductible, I want to change my coverages. It's, it's all or nothing. So if you have a $50,000 deductible, you can now buy a little piece of insurance that gives you coverage for uh, that deductible. Yes, Claude? You said you're either in the OSIP or you're not. Right. Have you seen general coverage that will let you out of the OSIP? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. So you're in the OSIP, but you're saying that there's policies available to cover the deductible. Yes. The deductible, yes. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's gap insurance. Your contractual indemnity and defense obligation is going to always be bigger than the available insurance that you have. So let me give you an example. We represent an underground contractor who was sued by a contractor um, for the work that they did. Uh, and the lawsuit that they received was for breach of contract for not providing a defense and indemnity. And the client came to us and said, but I have insurance. Actually, I, I have an OSIP, I'm on the OSIP. Like, why are they suing me if this is technically an insurance claim? And my answer is, well, you signed a contract and your contract said that you will provide them a defense and indemnity for anything that went wrong on the job. So they got sued, so guess what? They're suing you and they want you to deal with this problem, whether you have insurance or not. Um, and his comment was, well, I just figured that I didn't have to worry about it as long as I had insurance. And that's the, the, the uh, important takeaway from point number seven here, is just know that when you sign that contract, you, you have a lot more liability than, your, than any policy of insurance is gonna give you. So one of the things you could try to do is tie your indemnity obligation to your insurance coverage. So here's a way you could try to do that. Subcontractors' obligations to defend, indemnify, and hold owner and contractor harmless shall be coextensive with and limited by any available insurance coverage and only after contractor and owner have fully exhausted all available insurance. So this is, this is trying to take the indemnity and the insurance that run together, right? So a contractor or owner could sue you for either or both and says, you know what, we're gonna put the insurance first. So once you make a claim on the insurance and they deny it and you sue them and then they, they still don't have to pay, that's when you can come to me. That's the, um, that's the last sentence. 
and only after contractor and owner fully exhaust all available insurance. Again, not every contractor or owner is going to agree to this, but you need to try to make uh, you need to make some effort at mitigating your risk in the contract. Number eight, not complying with notice requirements um, or not documenting what's happening on the job. Um, so what does the contract say about claims, <coughs> delays, weather delays? Um, my guess is if you haven't uh, made a change, it probably says you have to give them notice within 48 hours, 72 hours of, of the instance that created the claim. Um, or you have to submit weather data within you know, two days of the event in order to make a, a weather delay claim. I'm guessing that you haven't complied because it's almost impossible to comply. Uh, things are happening so fast on a construction project to think that you're gonna have time to deal with all of that plus making sure, okay, well, this is likely gonna turn into a claim, so let's go ahead and put our notice in now. Um, so what can you try to do? You can try to extend the time that you have to make claims. It doesn't mean that you don't have to give notice. It just tries to give you a little bit more time. Uh, five days, seven days, 10 days. Uh, we have a client now who is a general contractor and he is building um, in Doral. And he signed a very one-sided agreement and this agreement required that any notices of delays had to be given with the necessary backup within 72 hours of the uh, instance giving rise to the delay. So he has, in round numbers, about a million dollars worth of claims associated with this project. It's about a uh, $70 million job, so there's a, he's got about a $1 million claim. And he put it all together, he submitted it to the owner, and the first response was the, to, from the owner was, uh, please provide the notice that you gave us 48 hours after uh, the instance that you're claiming is the cause of this delay. And guess what, we don't have, it. he never said it. So uh, it's a problem. So make sure you understand if you're going to sign a contract and it has specific contract provisions on notices and claims and back charges that you comply with those. Uh, yes? What's the remedy for that if you didn't notify but contemporaneous other records. And so that's what we in effect <clears throat> Right. In our case, what we're doing is we're going back and we're trying to find any other records that exist that would have put the owner on notice of the underlying issue so that it wasn't a formal notice as the contract says, but we're going to argue that the, that the owner knew yeah. that it's not a surprise. Yeah. It's not the best legal position. And say that there's none of that. It's absent on that. Can you be barred completely? Yes, the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. You need to make it a regular habit to document what's happening on your projects. Photos, videos, um, even if nothing is going wrong, by the way. Uh, just to be able to have a record of what's happening on the job as it's happening. I would suggest if you're not taking, you know, on an average job, uh, two or three dozen pictures a week, you're not taking enough pictures um, at a minimum. And you probably should be taking a lot more than that uh, of what's happening, what's happening on your job, your scope of work, what's happening around the job, 
you never know when those pictures are going to be valuable. It's just so easy to do now that not doing it um, creates risk for you. Uh, and then get and review meeting minutes for accuracy. We have a case now in Palm Beach where we're suing, we represent a, a, an owner against a contractor. And one of the best pieces of evidence we have are the meeting minutes, the weekly meeting minutes. They are fantastic. Well, guess who wrote them? My client wrote them. Guess who we sent them to? Everybody. Guess who objected? Nobody. And it's perfect. It tells our whole story of the case, of everything that went wrong in the meeting minutes. And they can't say they didn't get them because they were emailed at the end of every meeting. Um, so are you going to meeting minutes? Are you getting meeting minutes sent to you? If not, you need to get them. If you see things in the meeting minutes that are not accurate, are you sending an email? Thank you for the meeting minutes. Just uh, we'd like to note that we said X and Y happened, or we said X, which was not properly noted in the meeting minutes. All of this will come back to haunt you. The reality is, in the legal system, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So you need to look for all the opportunities that exist for things to be documented and make sure that they support your position. And then send confirming emails of important events regularly. Thanks for the meeting. We agreed that I was going to do X. You were going to do Y. Look forward to you know seeing you next week. Uh, all of those little things help. I would suggest emails over text messages. Some people like text messages. I'm not a big fan. They're usually hard to extract uh, from your phone. Um, but you know, any written correspondence like that to document what's happening on the job is critical. Nine, not securing your lien or bond rights. Um, always, always, always secure your lien or bond rights. I spoke to a client as I was walking into my office this morning. He does a lot of work in the in the building that, that we work in. Um, and he he saw me and he says, you know what, I got this guy, he owes me $800,000 for this contractor over several years worth of work. He'd get to the end of the job, the job wouldn't uh, would finish, and the guy, the contractor would say, I, you know, I just, I can't pay you, let me get on a payment plan. And uh, and he said, what can I do? I said, well, did you lean any of these jobs? Did you do? He said, no, I don't lean any of my jobs. Uh, I said, well, that's your first mistake. You need to notice and lean all of your jobs, no matter what. Um, and then don't give away your rights by signing a release. Um, so let's talk about the releases. If you agree in your contract to a form of a release, then you need to, then you're bound by that form of release. So when you read through your contract, one of the exhibits is probably a form of a release. If you have a change to make, you have to make it when you negotiate your contract. So let's take a look at some releases. So this is a standard lien release. This is found in Chapter 713, the lien statute. Pretty basic. It says for some amount of money through a, a specific date, right? So some amount of money through a specific date, you're giving up your lien rights. This is the progress payment uh, release. Very simple. Here's the final uh, release. It just has an amount. It has no through date because it's effective as of the day you sign it. So if I sign it today, then it's effective from today back. Um, 
So here's one that you need to be more careful of. And you can see, like, already, wow, that's a lot more words. So more words is should, you know, put up the red flag that something is different. Um, so look what this release is releasing. Uh, uh, any and all claims, change orders, works, materials, delays, fees, costs, losses, expenses, damages, or sums. This is everything. This is a general release. You can't come back later after signing this release saying, oh, by the way, I'm entitled to an additional you know, $20,000 for extended overhead. Or I have this other change order and you never approved it, so um, you, know, you need to pay me now. They'll roll out this release and say, well, no, we don't, because you released it all. Um, it has a through date which, again, you have to be very careful that the through date matches the amount of money you're getting. Um, but be very careful about signing away your rights uh, before you uh, truly understand the release that uh, you get. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we have clients do every once in a while is they'll just send me a release. They'll send me a release and say, hey, Alex, what do you think about this? Like, I think it's, I'm giving away more rights than I should, right? Am I reading this right? And usually I'll say, yes, you are. Don't sign that release. Um, so be very careful about that. So here's a sentence you can add to your contract to deal to only use the 713 releases. So all lien releases shall be in the form found in Florida Statute 713 and shall be conditioned on payment in cleared funds. So even though they attach a, an exhibit with a release that you don't want to use in your addendum, you can add this sentence and now when payment comes up, you can say, oh no, no, our contract says that I can use the 713 releases, which are the very simple ones I showed you at the beginning. Uh, to the extent that you are giving a release for a check without actually getting the check on the spot, you want to use conditional language so that in case you don't get the check, that that release is no good. And here's an example of that language. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary, this waiver and release is conditioned upon and not effective until the undersigned receives paid funds of, and then you list the amount. So that you write this on the release, if you never get the check and that release has been given, generally, not 100%, but generally, you will be protected because now the release is only conditioned on you getting the money, and if you never get the money, then it's no good. So let's briefly review, for those of you that uh, don't know, what the lien and bond deadlines are. Uh, each of you, we gave you a uh, what we call the calculine. It allows you to calculate the 45 days and the 90 days. So if you are going to assert your lien rights and you are a sub, sub-sub, or supplier to a sub or rental company, you, you need to serve a notice to owner that has to be received no later than 45 days from your first work on the job. You can do it earlier, you just can't do it later. Then within 90 days of your last work on the job, you need to serve, uh, you need to record a claim of lien. If you make a claim on a payment bond, it's the same time period, but that's a form called the notice of non-payment, and that goes in the mail. It's not recorded like a claim of lien. Uh, just so you know, in October of this year, the notice of non-payment form is changing. The legislature changed that form. And now instead of a notice of non-payment that's just like a letter, 
it's going to look a lot like a lean. It's going to have the first work, last work. It's going to have to be notarized. So it's a whole new form. The old form is no good as of October. The new form, uh, which we will put on our website in the coming uh, month or two, is the form that you need to use. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can send me an email. You still have till October, so you still have a little bit of time. And then finally, within one year of the recording date of the claim of lien, or one year from the date that the, of your last work for a bond claim, you have to file a lawsuit. It's important to know that none of these deadlines um, are when you have to do it. These are the deadlines. It can't be after this. So you can serve your notice to owner early, uh, earlier than 45 days. You can record a lien while you're still working on the job, just to exert some pressure on the owner. Uh, you can do it three days after you get off the job. You don't have to wait one year to file a foreclosure lawsuit. You could do that two days after you record your lien. Don't think you have to wait this long. These are just the outside deadlines. Now, in addition to the uh, calculating on paper, we have an app. You go to the App Store and download the Calculine. Uh, the nice thing about the app is that it will account for weekends and holidays because when you count the 45 and 90 days, if it lands on a Saturday, Sunday, or legal holiday, it rolls to the next day. Obviously can't do that on the paper form, but it does it in the app. All right, number 10, waiting too long to proceed legally. Hope is not a legal strategy. I hope they're gonna pay me. Um, that's not a good way to deal with your account receivables or a dispute that you may have. Um, if you keep waiting um, and you're not making progress, you're making a mistake. You should not wait for the sake of waiting um, because people move, witnesses forget, cell phones accidentally get put in the washing machine. I didn't make this up. If you read the Miami Herald, the cell phone of the engineer that was on the FIU bridge collapse, um, he was supposed to protect it. Uh, he went on a fishing trip. He left it in his shirt, his wife, uh, a, this all happened like a month ago, put it in the wash, uh, and now everything on that cell phone is, is gone. So things happen when you wait. So you shouldn't wait to proceed with your claim legally. There is definitely a first mover advantage when it comes to legal proceedings. Um, so if you have a, a, a legal issue, uh, make sure you, you act promptly. 